Buongiorno, benvenuto. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of City Breaks Florence, an episode I'm going to call Around San Lorenzo. After last week's trip to the church itself of San Lorenzo, a look inside at the artwork and some information on two people connected with it, today I want to come outside and stay in the area and focus attention on two other buildings which are very close by and both connected with the church. The first one is the Biblioteca Medicea Lorenziana, or Laurentian Library in English, a library built by members of the Medici family to house their book collection, one of the first very scholarly libraries built anywhere in Europe. And then secondly, the Capelle Medici, so the Medici Chapel, which is a very imposing and, in the opinion of some people, slightly mad mausoleum built at the back of San Lorenzo Church, in which the remains of many of the Medici family are to be found. And then for the final section, I'd like to do a biography of possibly the best known of all the Medici family, the one whose name is very linked with the Church of San Lorenzo, and that is Lorenzo, better known perhaps as Lorenzo il Magnifico. So, starting with the library, the Biblioteca, if you come out of the church and go through some really very lovely cloisters, you will come to the Biblioteca Medicea a building which has its roots actually in several of the Medici family. Cosimo de' Medici had a massive collection of ancient books. He loved the classics, Cicero and Virgil and Pliny. He loved the Tuscan authors of his day, so Petrarch and Boccaccio and Dante. And he stored all of his books to start with in his house on the Via Larga, but it wasn't long before he felt he needed more space for them. So when he commissioned the building of the monastery at San Marco, he made a point of having a library built there as well, and his books were stored there. But when they outgrew that, they needed to be moved somewhere else. Another member of the family who had lots of books and manuscripts, as we were talking about in the very last episode, is Lorenzo de' Medici. But in fact, it was neither of these men who first commissioned this new library. When Lorenzo's son Giovanni became Pope, he was Leo X, that coincided with very turbulent times in Florence, the days of Savonarola, etc., and he decided to have the Medici book collection moved to Rome to keep it safe. After things had calmed down a bit, there was a new Pope, Clement VII. He too was a Medici. He was actually Lorenzo's nephew, and he decided the moment was right to take the Medici book collection back to Florence and have a library commissioned the one that we're talking about here, the Laurentian Library, in order to store all these works. Building began in 1524 and they went straight to the top design-wise because they asked Michelangelo to help. This he agreed to do and there are several parts of the library designed by him, although in fact he didn't manage to finish it, he died before it was finished and the work was taken over by other architects, people like Vasari, Giorgio Vasari, who wrote The Lives of the Artists, and another architect called Bartolomeo Amanati. You're probably keen to know which bits of the library uh, Michelangelo was responsible for. The very first thing you come to, in fact, is one of his oeuvre, namely the staircase. When you go in through the main door, you might feel that you're looking at something slightly odd, and you'd be right. It's a massive staircase in a tiny little room. It's so big that it practically fills the room. Slightly odd. It was Michelangelo's idea of a joke, in fact, and he didn't stop there because he did some other playful things. If you stop to look at some of the columns that seem to be propping the walls up, you'll notice that, in fact, they're not supporting anything. They're just there for the sake of it. The whole thing looks very beautiful in stone and polished wood, 
But the more you look at it, the more you realise that it is really a rather a strange style. It was known, in fact, as mannerist architecture, creating illusions, having a little joke at the public's expense, perhaps. So do take a look at it on your way through. Um, But the most useful thing about it is it leads up to the next floor on which is found the reading room. Also mainly Michelangelo's work, an absolutely beautiful long reading room with carved wooden desks. When you look round in there, you really can feel the atmosphere of a medieval, scholarly, studious sort of collection of people. There are benches for them to sit on. If you lean forward, there are wooden planks just right for propping up the book that you're working on or the ones you're trying to read. And if you lift up the lids of the seats, you'll find plenty of storage space inside. So if you didn't finish your work in the library in one day, you could store your books and come back and have another go the next day. I actually thought it's one of the loveliest rooms in Florence, but I'm a bit of a fan of libraries, so perhaps I'm biased. Anyway, once you wander through, the next room you come to uh, is a suite of rooms. In fact, it's the exhibition rooms. And there you can see many of the pieces that the library have to show. They actually own some 15,000 pieces from the Medici collection. There are books, there are manuscripts, there are paintings. All kinds of fields are covered, so there's lots of literature. There are books on law, books on religion... Books on the sciences, of course, astronomy. And some of the copies that they're most pleased to own would include things like a 5th century copy of a Virgil text, a treatise on architecture written by Leonardo da Vinci, no less. They have the oldest known copies in the world of some of the Sophocles tragedies. And there's a manuscript of Boccaccio's Decameron. You may recall that's the sort of Tuscan version of the Canterbury Tales, the book from which I read a little bit describing the Black Death. So one of the very early copies of that is there to be seen in the library. It's a scholar's stroke book lover's paradise, really. And definitely worth a good look round before you set off to the other building, which is also connected to the San Lorenzo Church, the Cappelle Medici. A completely different matter, much less classy, I think, although I think it possibly cost far more to build. Doing the work took several centuries and materials were fetched from all over Europe. No expense was spared, as far as I can tell. And here too, Michelangelo played a role. So what actually was it? It was built as a mausoleum for some of the Medici family. The early members of the Medici family, who lived in Florence, are mainly buried in the Church of San Lorenzo. But from the 16th century onwards, it was decided that they wanted their own special place to be buried. They wanted a mausoleum where they knew that they could all have their last resting place. The first member of the family to be buried there was buried in 1526. He has a rather difficult name to pronounce, but I'll give it a go. One Giovanni dalle Bandinere. And then following on from that, all three of the Grand Dukes Cosimo, the first, the second and the third, are buried here, as indeed are both Dukes Ferdinando. The remains of about 50 family members are buried in the crypt on the ground floor. But the more special people have got their own special places upstairs in the mausoleum itself. And this is a highly decorated room, marble walls, full of jade and turquoise and gold and monuments. The plan was to have bronze statues of everybody who was going to be buried in this upper room. But in fact, so far, only two of them have been finished. They did slightly run out of money, I think. And although it's certainly very opulent, it's not to everybody's taste. I was rather keen on the um, sentence I read describing it in the rough guide, which read as follows, The oppressively colourful stone-plated hall 
built as a mausoleum for Cosimo I and the Grand Dukes who succeeded him. But I've tracked down some other people who didn't think very much of it either. So in 1776, Tobias Smollett wrote a book called Travels Through France and Italy. And he came here and didn't like it at all. In fact, he called it, quote, a monument of ill taste and extravagance. And as if that would not be dismissive enough, he then went on and wrote the following, quote, I was much disappointed in the chapel of San Lorenzo, notwithstanding the great profusion of granite, porphyry, jasper, verde antico, lapis lazuli, and other precious stones, representing figures in the way of marquetry, I think the whole has a gloomy effect. So one person thought oppressive, somebody else thinks gloomy. I sort of get where they're coming from. It is very dark marble and it's high walls and they do rather bear down on you. In the 19th century, Byron came to have a look and he didn't like it either. He described it as, quote, fine frippery in great slabs of various expensive stones to commemorate rotten and forgotten carcasses. Well, having read all of that, it's quite amusing to note that this was actually the most expensive project that the Medici family ever financed. And when you consider some of the other things they did, that really is saying something, is it not? In fact, the last member of the family, Anna Maria Luisa, who died childless in 1743, she was buried here, but at that date, they still owed debts to finish paying for it. I don't know whether they ever did finish paying for it. But I suppose to a certain extent it's achieved the wanted effect if people down the centuries, including right up to today, are, have been discussing what they think of it and whether they like it and whether it was a waste of money. It does at least keep the Medici family being talked about, which I have a feeling they would like. And when people talk today about the Medici, one of the people that they usually mention early on is Lorenzo il Magnifico. And this seems a good moment to give a slightly fuller biography of him than we've had so far. So he was the grandson of Cosimo de' Medici, which makes him the son of Piero the Gauti. And while Cosimo was a difficult act to follow, I think Piero the Gauti rather less so. So what is it that's kept him very well known all through the centuries? I think really it comes down to the fact that he was a very scholarly man, very interested in culture and in the arts, and that under him Florence became very famous for its culture, for its art. It had a reputation that spread far and wide, and people thought that was largely because of him. But there is another way of looking at it. He wasn't such a good businessman as Giovanni de Bici and Cosimo had been. They built up the family fortunes, made the bank best known in Europe, hugely profitable, and from that were able to buy power and influence and get a reputation for sponsoring the arts. Lorenzo really wasn't so interested in the bank. He was very lucky. He inherited a very healthy bank balance. So he was able to do the other things he liked because of that money. Franco Cesati, author of yet another book called The Medici, described Lorenzo as, quote, the first Medici to spend rather than accumulate. He wrote of his truly huge expenditures and said that, quote, in his hands, the enormous fortune amassed by Giovanni de Bici and Cosimo the Elder began to dwindle. So although the period when he was head of the family is definitely a golden era, both for the Medici family themselves and also for Florence, when you look back, you could pinpoint his rule as the time when the high point was reached and then things began to go downhill a little bit. He does seem to be a man who divides opinion. I found lots and lots of very effusive praise for him, but I've also found authors who really didn't think much of him at all. So I hope to give you a flavour of both of those. 
In the previous episode, we talked about his physical flamboyance, if you remember. There was a description of him at the jousts held in the piazza of Santa Croce just before his wedding, when he arrived to compete wearing a silk shirt embroidered with roses. But in fact, even that description was a little bit double-edged. It came from the Medici book by Franco Cesati, and after describing these very flamboyant clothes that Lorenzo was wearing, he went on to write the following, quote, Lorenzo was undoubtedly the most gallant knight, although certainly not the most attractive. He was a relatively short man with an olive complexion, his profile deformed by a long crooked nose that made him resemble a fawn. Mr Cesati does have to then go on and admit rather grudgingly that Lorenzo won the tournament. We've also already in a previous episode mentioned the fact that he was rather lucky. He managed to escape death in the murder plot when the Patsy family had decided to do away with him. In fact, on that occasion, he managed to escape death twice because the original plan was for the night before there was going to be a banquet and it had been decided that this would be a good opportunity to poison the two Medici brothers. But as it happened, Giuliano, Lorenzo's brother, whom the Patsies were also hoping to kill, wasn't very well that day and didn't go. So they postponed the plan and went for plan B the following day, um, which was murder in the cathedral during mass. I suppose you could say that Lorenzo's escape was partly luck and partly judgment because he had gone to this church service with a number of close friends who stuck close to him and were in fact there when he needed them to surround him and hustle him away so that he wasn't stabbed, although his brother was murdered. So, flamboyant, lucky, what else can we say about him? Well, he certainly could be very brave. When Florence managed to get itself locked in dispute with the Pope, a set of circumstances which led to war in the end, Lorenzo was the person who rescued them. Against all advice, he left the city by himself, went down to Naples to try and make peace with Ferdinand, King of Naples, who was one of the Pope's allies. A lot of people thought that they would never see him again, that he just simply wouldn't get away, he'd be killed by somebody on the way there or on the way back. But this didn't happen. It was also a good occasion for him to show off his bargaining skills, because he did, in the end, manage to secure an agreement. It came at quite a heavy price. He had to spend three months in Naples, showering the king and queen with luxury gifts. He had to agree to release some of the members of the Patsy family from prison, which I'm sure he can't have wanted to do because they'd tried to murder him and they had succeeded in murdering his brother. But he obviously decided this was a price worth paying and it did allow him to return to Florence in triumph and have everybody think how brave he was. When he came back, Niccolò Machiavelli was there And he wrote the following to underline what a magnificent reputation Lorenzo now had. So, quote, Great upon his departure, he returned even greater, and his city received him with gladness. They admired his fine qualities and fresh merits, he having risked his very life to bring peace to his country. He was Renaissance man, really. When he wasn't winning jousts or saving the nation, he was turning his house into a cultural reference point for scholars from all over Europe. His Plato workshop, which he ran from home, was attended by scholars and artists and politicians from all the best-known intellectuals of the day. And every year on November the 7th, which was Plato's birthday, they would celebrate with a fabulous banquet held in the Villa Caleggi, which was his summer residence, and to which all the literary friends would come. But he didn't just encourage other scholars, he was a bit of an author himself. He wrote descriptions of family life, he wrote philosophical meditations, he even wrote poetry. He liked to write love poetry, 
One of his works was called Forests of Love, for example, but he wasn't above the bawdy either. He wrote, for example, a poem called The Drunkards. He founded Florence's Carnival and he wrote a carnival song called The Triumph of Bacchus and Ariana. His first two lines are quite well known, in fact. It starts like this. Oh, how fair is youth and yet how fleeting. Let yourself be joyous if you feel it. Of tomorrow there is no certainty. A real carpe diem mentality. As well as collecting scholars around him, he used to like to collect ancient manuscripts as well. And then he would employ dozens of scribes and miniaturists to copy them and illustrate the manuscripts, which was actually a great service because that meant there were more copies in circulation and many more people got to read them. So he really helped to spread knowledge and learning through Florence and beyond. It wasn't just the written word that was his passion. He was very keen on the visual arts as well. He founded a sculpture school in Florence, which meant that a lot of young people got the opportunity to learn to sculpt, one of those being Michelangelo. Michelangelo was picked out personally by Lorenzo. He happened to pass by when the young Michelangelo was working on a statue and he noticed his talent and scooped him up. He actually took Michelangelo into his household and treated him almost like a son so that he ate with the family, attended the sculpture school, received a stipend and learnt his art. Lorenzo was very instrumental in the success of the University of Pisa. It did already exist and had been famous but it was in decline, and in 1473, Lorenzo decided it must become the top Tuscan university again, so he dug into his coffers and awarded it a large amount of money. He was also very interested in Greek, and when the city of Constantinople fell, a lot of people had to leave there in a hurry. Some of them were Greek scholars who fled to the West, and those who came to Florence were encouraged to stay by Lorenzo. He financed them too, and the result of that was the first printed edition of Homer's poems. And then not to forget the fact that he was also a family man. He had married Clarice Orsini when she was 17. He was in his early 20s, and it seems to have been a very happy marriage, and they had seven children together. They had a lovely string of beautiful Italian names, actually, which I can't resist reading to you. So there was Lucrezia, who I think was named after Lorenzo's mother, Piero, the one who went on, of course, to become Piero the Gouty, Maddalena, Giovanni, Luisa, Contessina, and little Giuliano. Giuliano was named after Lorenzo's brother, Giuliano, the one who had been murdered, and he turned out to be their last child. I found an extract of a letter which gives a lovely picture of family life for Lorenzo and, and his wife. She had actually gone to the country for a week or two and taken the children with her, and Piero, who was seven at the time, wrote to his father in the following words. We are all well and studying, and Giovanni is beginning to spell. Lucrezia sews, sings and reads. Maddalena knocks her head against the wall, but without doing herself any harm. Luisa has begun to speak a few words, and Contesina fills the house with her noise. In that letter, Piero asked his dad whether he could have a pony, and Lorenzo must have sent one, because in a subsequent letter, this is what Piero wrote. I cannot tell you how glad I am to have the pony. He is so handsome and so perfect. I send you many thanks for such a fine gift. I shall try to repay you by becoming what you wish. It's perhaps just as well to know that Lorenzo never found out that when Piero took over from him after his death, he had to flee the city in the end when the French invaded it. I guess if your dad's Renaissance man, it's a hard act to follow. 
One problem which Lorenzo didn't manage to overcome was the problem of the mad monk Girolamo Savonarola, who was given to fiery sermons and prophesying the doom of the city, railing about worldliness and people with wealth, and how corrupt the city of Florence was, and how too many people were giving in to pleasures and lust. You have to imagine that Lorenzo must have felt himself slightly the target of some of these accusations. He played it fairly cannily. He used to go and listen to Savonarola speak, but he made a point of never answering him or getting into an argument with him in any way. But Savonarola became more and more of a problem. We're going to talk about this in the next episode, actually. More and more of the citizens turned to him and his ideas, and things seemed to be spiralling badly out of control. In fact, Lorenzo died before the problem was solved, And it is interesting to note that when he was on his deathbed, he actually sent for Savonarola to give him the last rites. So although we suspect that he didn't agree with everything he had to say, he obviously had some respect for him. What happened in the end was that Savonarola was tried and executed as a heretic, but Lorenzo didn't find any of that out because he had died before that ever came to pass. So for all his successes, you do have to say that this was one difficulty that he didn't manage to get on top of. So, to summarise, Lorenzo definitely divides opinion. He's been famous all down the centuries for all the very good things that he did for Florence. But more recently, historians are beginning to question whether, in fact, he was not also ruthless and greedy and not above using other people for his own ends. In yet another book called The Medici, this one by Mary Hollingsworth, there's really quite a lot of ammunition fired at him. She's very much of the opinion that He did some terrible things financially, cheated other people. Um, Here, for example, is how she explains one particular instance. Quote, Lorenzo's personal finances took a serious hit in 1485 when Lorenzo di Pier Francesco came of age and demanded the repayment of the 53,643 florins that the senior Lorenzo had taken illegally from him and his brother Giovanni in 1478. The two brothers also demanded the enormous sum of 158,766 florins, which they claimed was due on unpaid interest and other loans, and more besides. They explained, Lorenzo had forced us to lend this money, and if we had not done so, as he once told me in his study, as guardians of our inheritance, he would take it. They also claimed that Lorenzo had actually stopped them taking their own money out of the bank, this in fact for an entire period of four years. And they weren't the only people who had things to say about Lorenzo's ruthlessness with money. Here's the historian Francesco Gucciardini, also quoted in Mary Hollingsworth's book. Quote, he did not neglect any manner of magnificence, however costly, with which he could keep the favour of powerful men. Guicciardini goes on to accuse him of helping himself to money which belonged to his friends or to public funds, which of course he was in a position to do because of his role in the Signoria. And Mary Hollingsworth's own conclusion reads as follows. Indeed, Lorenzo's corruption is a sorry tale of greed and one that rarely makes its ways into the annals of Medici history. She very much thinks that people have been blinded by all the good stuff they've read about Lorenzo and haven't looked hard enough to find out how he was actually achieving some of these things. She also thought he was a very wily operator politically. For example, when he came back from Naples, having scored a diplomatic triumph, he set up a council of 70 who were hand-picked Medici partisans, as she puts it. They weren't elected, but they were appointed for life, and he made sure that they were all very loyal and would back all his policies. 
She notes too that Lorenzo secured himself a very secure and influential position in Florence's ruling elite. Previous generations of Medici had been first among equals, but Lorenzo styled himself the first citizen. She describes how he used to go out and about with with what she calls a personal bodyguard of ruffians and tells us how the ambassador from Milan described Lorenzo as, quote, so clearly wielding the baton of command without actually holding it. So there you have it, the case for the prosecution and for the defence. If you're interested in following this up, then I would suggest there'll be two books that you could read that'll tell you lots of the things that you want to know. They're both called The Medici. The first one is by Paul Strathern, and that seems to focus particularly on all the positive things that Lorenzo did and his positive legacy, whereas the book entitled The Medici by Mary Hollingsworth gives you a much clearer idea that there were uh, there was a black side to him as well. Either way, I think it's good to know a little bit about him before you set off for Florence, because you will find him and traces of him and mentions of his name absolutely everywhere. Perhaps it is because we can truly say that he presided over the last really magnificent era in Florence, and that after him, things were never quite so shiny and marvellous again. Okay, so that about wraps things up for this episode. Just remains to tell you that next time I'm intending to think about the Piazza della Signoria, the largest square in Florence where the Signoria, the building from which Florence was governed, is. We'll have a look at the history of that and some stories that go along with it. And particularly, we'll have a look at Savonarola, the actual story in more detail of the monk who nearly brought Florence to its knees, but who in fact, in the end, was burnt to death in the piazza. So I hope you'll join me for that. I hope that you found today's episode of interest. And it just remains to thank you very much for listening. Grazie and to say goodbye. Arrivederci.